Before you listen to this podcast, just a quick word on some special offers for PTO listeners. For a short time only, new $8 patrons can get a free one-year print and digital subscription to Tribune magazine. New $5 patrons can get 50% off a Tribune subscription. And all new $3 patrons of the show can get 50% off any new print or ebook from Repeater Books. Their many excellent titles include Stolen, How to Save the World from Financialization by Grace Blakely, K-Punk, The Collected and Unpublished Writings of Mark Fisher, and Leslie Ann Brown's Decolonial Daughter, Letters from a Black Woman to Her European Son. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. Hello and welcome to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Adam Toos. We spoke about the Trump administration's response to the COVID-19 crisis, whether the severe public health emergency and economic recession facing the United States will lead to China displacing the US's role in the world system, And we also chatted about the dispute within the Eurozone over the question of so-called corona bonds. If you'd like to hear the extended version of today's interview, then please consider becoming a supporter of the show. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from $3 a month, which is just over £2. Adam Toos holds the Shelby Cullum Davis Chair of History at Columbia University and serves as Director of the European Institute. His most recent book is Crashed, How a Decade of Financial Crises Changed the World, which we discussed in episodes 20 and 23. And we also chatted about his earlier work, The Wages of Destruction, The Making and Breaking of the Nazi Economy, in episode 14. You're in New York at the moment, rapidly becoming one of the main centres of the COVID-19 outbreak. What does the situation in in New York and, and the US more broadly look like to you today, both in terms of the public health crisis, but also at the political and economic level? The mood is eerie, like I think everyone has described who has been through this experience. It's a weird combination of demobilization, of silence, of confinement on the one hand, and then a largely imagined and mediatized crisis, which then takes place in the hospital sector where where the conditions rapidly deteriorate. And New York is already... I think, beyond the point at which the hospital system is coping in the way that it normally would. And from here on in, the prognosis for the next two weeks is is absolutely dire. We are now at the epicentre, not just really of the US outbreak, but one of the largest and most rapidly growing centres of infection in the world. And having you know been in New York for the last couple of weeks, it comes as no surprise. We didn't eat the warnings. We didn't take seriously the lessons taught by Italy or Wuhan and Hubei. And the realisation of that, I think, is slowly sinking in. And its implications are, of course, extraordinarily grave. The, in the meantime, as the, the seriousness of the situation dawned on the financial markets, even before you know, serious decisions were taken about lockdown, we've seen you know, two, two and a bit weeks now of really unprecedented uh, turmoil in financial markets. Again, New York at the centre of that, though, is of course, it's always something that happens rather remotely if, if you're not in the financial markets themselves. But that is now also spilling over into a real economic shock. So 
as you know, as you look up and down the streets of New York, if you, if you, from our building, we have the vantage point of being able to look up and down Broadway, you see shops closed. And as the seriousness of the economic situation becomes clear, you realize that many of those shops may not reopen. So this is moving from being, as it were, a crisis coded above all as a temporary public health measure to being something akin to, well, it's going to, I think, quite clearly be a major recession. We're not handling this through short-time work in an organized form of, if you like, governmentally sanctioned layoff. Millions of Americans are simply losing their jobs. I mean, we're we're awaiting the unemployment numbers out of the Bureau of Labor Statistics tomorrow morning. Uh, But, you know, anxious estimations suggest that well over 3 million people may have lost their jobs uh, in a single week. And that number is just that, I mean, bewildering. I mean, in the worst phases of the 08-09 crisis, 800,000 people lost their jobs in in a month. So we're looking at something like 10 times worse than that, because if you spread, you know, if you multiply 3 million job losses over four weeks in March and into April, we'd be looking at, you know, maybe as many as 10 million people having been laid off. Those are ruptured employment contracts. Those are paychecks that won't arrive. That is a huge shock of uncertainty to millions of the most vulnerable workers We know from the grim statistics of American inequality that about half of American households essentially have no financial cushion. The society, I think, in the political system, and then on top of that, you could add, as it were, the clown show that is, you know, Washington politics in the Trump administration. So we're watching a humiliating display of political incompetence, a terrifying public health crisis as a result of the failure of the authorities to respond sooner a crisis in which we, when we look around us, find ourselves complicit because we were too slow to adopt the measures that were necessary for a lockdown. Financial turmoil, which hits middle class and upper middle class Americans directly through their privatized pensions accounts, which has been more severe than ever before in history, whiplashing back and forth between collapse and surge. And then a very real unemployment crisis, all compounded into a single moment. It's extraordinarily intense. I think more intense in this concatenation of crises, even than 08, 09, arguably unprecedented in the scale, severity and speed of this uh, shutdown. I mean, we've seen in recent days, Donald Trump uh, fulminating against the idea of an extended lockdown. And suggesting that severe restrictions should end by Easter and, and declaring um, regarding the impact on the US economy that the, the cure can't be worse than the disease, as he, as he put it on, on Twitter. I mean, given that capitalism depends on growth for its reproduction as a system and, and given that a severe recession could threaten the US vis-a-vis its strategic rivals, China in particular, do you think there's a chance that we're going to see more talk of this kind as, as time passes and, and perhaps even outside the United States as well? Or do you think it would be just too dangerous for elites to effectively make the move to, to openly sacrifice people for the, uh, the health of the, the economy and that doing so would you know, just provoke a really massive legitimacy crisis? I think we are looking at a legitimacy crisis, even even you know, in, it, in its current stages. I mean, I think we were dealing with the legitimacy crisis in the US, you know, well before that. And Donald, product, Donald Trump is the product of the legitimacy crisis, I think. He's an expression of it. Fake news didn't start with Trump. There's been a kind of progressive degeneration of the ability of the political system, not just of the US, of course, 
to assemble viable majorities that are able then to concert, you know, a construction of the common interest and the common good, uh, which is, of course, always aligned with power and with the major interests of capital and other uh, elite groups in society. So I take I take it that this crisis is happening against the backdrop of, of a legitimacy crisis. But I do think you're right to say that we are moving into a truly dynamic phase, you might say, of that crisis. And I would really distinguish here, you know, two modes of crisis management, one of which is, you know, the kind of, uh, let's put it in idealized terms, the South Korean kind of strategy, which you know, plays out in reality the the ideal type of the the hammer and the dance, as as was formulated in that excellent web post. In other words, a very aggressive early strategy in suppressing the the epidemic, so that then you can rapidly move, or relatively rapidly move to a more negotiated strategy of containment with various types of limitations coming off. That will be the dance phase. And and that has about it a kind of paradoxical quality because in the first instance, it requires you to acknowledge there is a public health emergency and then to say, we will sacrifice everything to achieving control over that crisis. But the payoff from that is that the amount of restriction you have to impose turns out, in fact, to be quite limited. The casualties are also quite limited. And so within a relatively short period of time, a matter of six to eight weeks, you can return to something like ordinary business with all of, if you like, the basic elements of modern politics remaining in place. The political system does its thing. The economy's interests are being considered because you haven't had to lock down for a large period of time. And on the other hand, the mortality rate is not so outrageous as to prevent you from moving back to various types of normality. And unfortunately, in the West, we miss the moment at which those trade-offs were workable in that way. To have implemented that kind of strategy, we would have needed to have acted in February. And what we've slid into is something which is much, much more polarised, um, in which you basically have to say we're going to engage in a huge sacrifice of the interests of the economy, because otherwise we're going to have an absolutely huge catastrophe in terms of mortality and a total shambles of our healthcare system that will leave, as it were, the legitimacy of the welfare state in the more comprehensive sense of that term, just in tatters. I mean, as, as you say, there are certain countries, I mean, particularly countries in East Asia who've responded in far more effective ways to, to the crisis. But even there, I mean, t- today there was a report in the Financial Times of a return of, of some restrictions in certain East Asian countries. Uh, Tokyo has gone into, into lockdown. Given the, the generally fragile state of the global economy before the crisis hit, is even a reduced impact situation that we see in somewhere like Japan or South Korea, is that really sustainable in the long term, do you think? I mean, I think it's too soon to tell what the phase of release will look like in South Korea, Taiwan and China. They are, after all, not autonomous, autarkic units within the world economy. The prosperity they enjoy depends, Mm. uh, in all three cases, absolutely intimately on global trade. One of the differences between this moment and 2008 is the response of Beijing, which has been effective in the end at containing the crisis, but has not so far shown this, you know, has not so far gone to the levels of stimulus that we saw in 2008, either on the fiscal or on the monetary policy side. And there are very powerful reasons for that. Um, China is much more constrained than it was previously by anxieties around the stability of its financial system, the over accumulation of unproductive investments, and 
haunted by the memory of the shock of 2015-2016 when the Chinese currency reversed its otherwise inexorable upwards movement against the dollar and suddenly devalued and about a trillion dollars fled out of China um, into uh, the international financial system and principally towards dollar-denominated assets. And those aren't risks that Beijing wants to run under these circumstances, but not doing so uh, means that it is hampered in its ability to respond with its usual vigor to this setback to the Chinese economy. And that setback is only now beginning to really reveal itself in its full scale. Obviously, the real estate sector, real estate construction are really the kind of driving engine of Chinese growth. And it's an open question, I think, how far the Chinese real estate se- real estate sector is going to come back. There are very large debtors, uh, large development companies in the Chinese real estate sector with very large dollar exposure, which will have come under tremendous pressure in recent weeks as the dollar appreciated. So there are a lot of uncertainties there. But I still would insist that the management, the early management of the crisis in Asia enables a conventional game of trade-offs to be played there in a way that may not be available to the Western states, where the trade-offs are becoming extraordinarily extreme, where the choice is literally between a Great Depression-style shutdown with Bullard of the... Uh, Federal Reserve System, since St. Louis Fed was speculating about 30% unemployment in the United States on the one hand, and on the other, credible forecasts that are being presented to senior figures in Congress, I gather, in the last couple of days, running to between 1.6 and 2 million casualties. And so then, you know, your trade-offs are extreme on both sides. And politics like that of Donald Trump will then oscillate wildly between the two um, without, if you like, being able to sustain either the legitimacy of the public health campaign because the costs are so enormous, or on the other hand, the legitimacy of an economic policy because the costs in terms of public health are so enormous. So there's a sense in which um, that, I think, is the nature of the legitimacy crisis, which is facing the West. We go from a world in which we knew the economy stupid was the mantra, a kind of well-ordered psychological structure in which that was the organising principle to a kind of schizophrenic or Jekyll and Hyde kind of world in which we're tugged between massive priority for public health and and then an obscene priority for economic growth on the other without really being able to stabilise the kind of compromise that's still open to places like South Korea. And what does this mean for the at the geopolitical level? Because, I mean, some, some analysts are making the point that China's relatively effective suppression of, of coronavirus is going to just generally raise the prestige of China's economic and, and political model around the world, and particularly in the global south, whereas, as you described, we're seeing a, you know extremely chaotic response in places like the, the UK and especially the United States. But at the same time, China was, of course, experiencing a, a serious economic slowdown prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. So, I mean, do you think the crisis really does herald a, another step in China's rise to possible global preeminence? I'm not sure I would want to pronounce on like the global preeminence stakes quite at this stage. But it's difficult to see how this doesn't further reinforce the impression that American power is increasingly incoherent and that there is a vast gulf between, on the one hand, if you like, the outward facing dimensions of American power, of which the two most important are the military, who have yet not come into play um, in this crisis. And on the other hand, the Federal Reserve and the dollar based financial system, which has been hyperactive in the last couple of weeks and has been acting, you know, 
as a kind of, you know, on the 2008 model um, on steroids. So even more rapid, even larger, even more extensive in many ways. That doesn't mean it's comprehensive by any means. And we can ask whether the 08 model is really appropriate to the current moment. But that is a dimension of American power that we can't ignore. And on the other hand, you know, what is going to be exposed is not just the, you know, not just the metaphorical bankruptcy, but the literal bankruptcy of America's domestic social model in the sense that even as the hospitals find themselves working frantically, you know, under the point of the almost, you know, to, to death, if you like, on the sacrificing their own staff, the, the employers, the hospitals and the doctor's practices are facing a huge financial shock from which they have to be, you know, uh, rescued by a congressional bailout because of the utterly incoherent and absurd and indeed obscene way in which healthcare is organized in the United States as this ramshackle, disorganized, privatized system. So that that disjuncture is, you know, is becoming ever more manifest, which was already evident in earlier stages, but now is sort of glaring. And then the sheer irrationality, the just gratuitous irrationality of the Trump administration's response which does contrast with that of virtually everywhere else in the world and awakens you know, memories and associations with climate politics in the United States. It does mark the US out as separate and different and not in a good way. And a kind of negative exceptionalism begins to emerge here, I think. And uh, whether, you know, where China fits in that, um, you know, I think we'll have to, we'll see how it plays out. I mean, they've given notice of the fact that they intend to, both provide assistance to other countries who are in trouble and to take advantage of that for political reasons, which, you know, one can hardly begrudge them that. And in the end, we will, at the end of this year, have to do the bitter reckoning in which it seems as though the pandemic in Asia will have been contained with deaths running into the thousands. And it it seems as though the West is doomed to live out a scenario which is orders of magnitude, not one, but probably several orders of magnitude worse. And then I think we will have to ask ourselves the question, you know, why is it that we prefer our system? What is it about our system that we held to be better? How on earth does one justify the the incapacity and the incoherence of our response? So I do think, you know, this is going to raise that question, which was being posed anyway. And it's going to pose it in an incredibly material way. And furthermore, it won't be a question just for, you know, where should Tanzania source its railway infrastructure? It will be why I as an Italian, you know, what is it that how is it that I justify my system in light of this experience? So it's something that will then impinge on us all directly in the West rather than being, as it were, some game being played out on a geopolitical playing board very remote. I mean, that point on the US as an outlier, I mean, trying to think more optimistically about the US situation, you know, a week or two ago, one could have looked at the UK and said the UK is is, is, uh, is the outlier in Europe. And increasingly, it looks like the UK response is going to slowly with a lot of foot dragging, partly because every measure they're taking just, you know, contradicts the ideology of people like Boris Johnson and, and the people in his cabinet. But they do seem to be being pushed closer to the standard European response, which involves protecting workers' workers' wages and, and moving towards a more intensive lockdown. Do you think the incoherence of the American political situation just means that's really not on the cards for the US, even over over you know some time? Well, uh, I mean, the damage, in a sense, to me, once you fail to act swiftly with this crisis. 
It's just the logic of epidemiology that takes over. And that is overwhelming. And its pace is extraordinarily fast. So in the US, you know, there has been no time to put together a coherent labor market response with some sort of sort of short working uh, mandate or something like that. We've, we've tumbled into a situation where, you know, it's quite likely that we'll find out tomorrow morning that more than three million Americans were laid off in the last week. In a week, three million. So that's 10 times worse than at the worst moment of the 2008-9 financial crisis, where the worst months, 800,000 people lost their jobs. And th- th- there, is no, there is no labor market administration in place that can cope with the scale of that kind of shutdown. American employers react lightning quickly to these kind of incentives. And so from then on in, you're always behind in the game because your option of holding people in place in their jobs and then somehow, you know, funneling their paycheck from is uh, through for the public account is gone. I mean, then you have to resort to this makeshift of people of sending people checks. But of course, their employment relationships don't come back in quite the same way. And especially if, you know, the crisis hits the small business sector in the way that we expect it to do, it's going to wipe out, if you like, the a large part of the petty bourgeoisie of urban America and put in play all of the millions of jobs which depend on those small precarious businesses. So, again, if you don't act soon enough, um, you you lose the capacity really to respond. It's as though there are, as it were, depending on you, you depending on the speed with which you respond, if you like, two or possibly three models which you are forced towards by simply the force of circumstances. I mean, if you, if you, like the UK, are late to the game, you end up nevertheless converging on the kind of strategies that other people have adopted. If you are extremely late in the game, as the United States is, we're yet to see precisely what that looks like. But it's another set of even worse options than the ones that are available to the European welfare states and the European labour market systems. But what's driving this is the is the pace of the epidemic and the public health policy options which are necessary to counter it stage by stage as you face a threat of greater and greater dynamic uh, dynamic force if we were in the united states by april to you know to engage in some sort of let off and we were going to loosen the controls obviously that dynamic would be ratcheted up by one more level and we would be looking at a largely out of control epidemic. I think probably New York is at that stage. If you look at Governor Cuomo's charts, they look like the unflattened curve in the famous graph that that everyone is familiar with now. What that New York looks as though it's on the short, massively excessive spike. That that may in fact be our reality here. I mean, I, I've already asked this question of, of several other guests I've spoken to, but but I thought it'd be good to get your view on this as well. I mean, if we go back to the early stages of the 2008 crisis, it was almost orthodoxy to think that the neoliberal mode of governance was on the ropes and that we would see perhaps a, a, a big political opening for the left. And of course, that's not at all how it played out. We saw the centre and the right very effectively force the costs of the crisis onto ordinary working people through austerity measures and and shoring up the the financial sector in ways that increased government involvement, but without raising the prospect of real public or or, or democratic control of of, of financial institutions. Given what you said about the scale of of, of the crisis, do you think we really are looking at the kind of real political and economic transformation that will will bring the neoliberal era to a a close, for good or ill? Obviously, we could be looking at, at something far worse in terms of an authoritarian mode of, of post-neoliberal society? I have to say that I've, I've shied away from systematically 
talking in terms of those kind of categories and those kind of schema, if you like, for thinking about our about our reality. And so I didn't really employ the kind of neoliberalism crisis narrative for in, for in, in my history of 2008. I tried to look instead at like concrete mechanisms for organizing economic activity, for governing, for intervening in it. And I would, I think I would probably urge the same approach here. I do think that there is a you know, there may be a catastrophic challenge to the overarching theme of the priority of the economy as such uh, that the West Europeans and the United States are heading towards. And, And that obviously was a crucial framing device, not just in the era of, you know, what is conventionally thought of as the era of neoliberalism since the 1970s, but all the way back to the interwar period. The, the economy was the object around which class compromise was bargained in the corporatist period. Uh, it was then renegotiated as a more abstract total uh, claim, I think, on politics in, in the period from the 1970s onwards. And, and clearly, the public health emergency of the current moment reconfigures that again, all the while, the mechanisms that are being employed to stabilize financial uh, the financial system in the face of the shock are directly in continuity with 2008. We really are running that same playbook again. And the fiscal politics of the moment is a full blast, you know, shifting of risk from the private sector balance sheet onto the public balance sheet. And rather than the extraordinarily unbalanced mechanisms that were put in place in 08 for doing that shift, this is going to be rather more comprehensive. But in detail, the struggles will be on, and they are already going on very manifestly and out loud and in public in the US about whose risks get put on the balance sheet of the public purse and on what terms. And then, of course, we need to remember the timeline here, because in 08, 09, there was a fairly broad-based push in a Keynesian direction. There was much talk of the returns of Keynes and so on, only then 12 months later for the austerian backlash to kick in. And we should be bracing for that in this case too, in the sense that the huge public debt commitments that are being made now will no doubt serve fiscal conservatives as a cross on which to nail progressive politics from here until kingdom come. And you can already begin to see that working its way through in the US, not necessarily at the national level, but at the state level and the local government level, where even in 08-09, there was never really the big Keynesian push. So the Obama stimulus of January 09 uh, was largely offset by fiscal contraction at the state and local government level. And then big American states are, of course, the size of medium-sized European states. So these are very large entities. They have their own fiscal problems. And the governor of Ohio is already announcing that he needs to slash public spending, uh, furlough public servants and so on because of the hit to revenue from the shutdown. So that logic, two logics are operating simultaneously. We have this expansionary fiscal policy or stabilizing fiscal policy at the national level combined with contractionary logics being played out in an uninhibited fashion at the local level already. And I think that kind of swaying, oscillating move between, you know, the open handed move to stabilize business and the economy at this moment, followed by a contraction, is what we should expect for the future. I mean, I realize this isn't something you've focused on particularly, but 
you know, if we think about the the, the failure of, of of the left to oppose its agenda in two thousand and eight, and what you're describing here, the, the reimposition of, of a logic of austerity after the, the the worst of the crisis fighting is is over, what do you think the left might be able to, without you know, wishing to treat the two situations as, as the same because clearly they're very different, but how do you think the left might seek not to succumb to that situation again? Well, I think the political, you know, politics, the political system doesn't doesn't yield to the same sort of systemic analysis that, say, the operations of global foreign exchange markets do. And so it's by necessity a, a series of national and indeed, in some cases, regional and local stories, the fiscal politics of Germany, for instance is crucially determined by the position of states within the German Federation, likewise in in the US. But if we take the United States, which I'm closest to right now, then I think you can see the left wing of the Democratic Party already positioning itself to play the role which I think it always envisioned for itself, which is a sort of Tea Party of the left. In other words, as a minority group within the broad church of the Democratic Party, which is very broad indeed, which will uphold and maintain defensive positions as the centrist leadership of the party sways in uh, back and forth in the middle ground and succumbs again and again to its you know proclivity for bad economics and conservative fiscal policy and i haven't been able to follow in detail the discussions in the house and around the members of the house in in washington in in congress uh, this morning but the deal that was done for the 2 trillion dollar stimulus is a deal between figures in the senate and a and others in the House had already registered, I think, their profound disagreement with the, the basic composition of this package, which is incredibly pro-business and, as you'd expect, and, and, and gives the White House a deciding voice, not unchecked anymore, but nevertheless a deciding voice in a $500 billion slush fund. So those kind of arguments are, are I think, in the American context where the left can exercise real influence if it plays its cards right and with real determination in the same way as the Tea Party and the hardliners, the fiscal hawks in the Republican Party demonstrated their capacity to mobilize in Congress. That's the kind of role that I would see in the American context. And it's a very important one, even if it is not, as it were, shaping policy at the highest level. It's a crucial defensive position for the left to occupy. And that's a battle that they should brace for. How this will play out in individual circumstances in, I don't know, a majoritarian Westminster system like the UK, what the role might be for the Labour Party there is is too much for me to to comment on right now. Certainly in Germany, what we're seeing, um, and, you know, the test will come tomorrow in in the Eurozone arguments is once more the question being put to the SPD and being put to Olaf Scholz in particular, where he stands actually. And he has desperately tried to avoid the question of euro bonds, of corona bonds being put. He was pleading with his colleagues earlier this week for them not to force the issue. They have now decided to force the issue. So this really is a moment of truth, I think, for the centre left in Germany to make clear where it stands on the future of European politics, really, not just fiscal politics, but politics as a whole. How do they envision the future of the eurozone. If Germany digs in and insists that Corona bonds are not an option, in the face of the call from, you know, France, Italy, Spain, Portugal, Ireland, the list of nine, you know, leading fellow members, I think then really the question of the further rationale of the eurozone is posed in a way it has not been posed before, because this is a different type of crisis with a different type of logic, and if there is no basis for solidarity. Now, in the face of this crisis, what on earth could be what what on earth could provide that basis? 
I mean, as you say, we'll find out tomorrow, but what would your guess be? Which way do you think that that, that, that debate is likely to go? I mean, I'm all right now a participant. I'm like, uh, we have a, I have a, with Moritz Schullerich, the, the brilliant German economist, we have an open letter coming out in The Guardian tomorrow morning, we hope. It's being edited as we speak. I mean, I'm engaged in that politics of, you know, in a sense, really marginal, but nevertheless, you know, the politics of public pressure. I haven't had a chance to take soundings with friends in Germany as to where they think the finance ministry will come down and what that might do to the internal politics of the coalition. The situation is just moving so quickly that it's very difficult, very difficult for me to give you a reasonable answer to that question at this point. But I do think the chips are down. I mean, this is the decision by Macron and Portugal and Italy and Spain to force the issue at this point is dramatic. I mean, what, what are we to make of the situation if they are argued down? I mean, what, what, you know, what would the citizens of Europe be expected to make of a situation in which their governments made such an obviously reasonable appeal for financial solidarity in a moment of crisis like this, and they were refused? I mean, it's very difficult for me to understand how, I mean, and it will take considerable thinking through to decide what what one one is to make if indeed they are turned down. And of course, you know, on form, on track record, we know how this goes. Um, there will be a no and Germany will orchestrate some kind of coalition of, of opponents and uh, they will attempt to use the ESM and the ECB as pale and inadequate substitutes for what is actually necessary. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you'd like to hear the extended version of today's interview, then please consider becoming a supporter of the show. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from $3 a month, which is just over £2. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up.